Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 74. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Last week in episode 73, we were talking about a pamphlet that I brought to the table called The Manger and the Mystery. I was totally encouraged by that conversation in in a lot of different ways, and it raised all kinds of different questions for you about mm. the covenant and what is this promise? And if that's the start of the gospel message and not sin, which is normally how the presentation works. And normally the presentation works that Adam sinned. We inherit all that from Adam. God can't stand or be in the presence of sin. Someone need to pay for it. Jesus stood in our place and took the punishment for that so that we wouldn't have to, and that's why we get to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this led to a couple of things. Well, first of all, I want to give a shout-out to listener Anna and also listener Evan. They, at different times, mentioned N.T. Wright. You mentioned him as well, but you know I can't take everything you say. So I... <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So in a comment for episode 73, Evan mentioned Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright, which I think I mentioned on a podcast some time ago, and I never finished the book. I got a little bit in, was intrigued by it, and then moved on. But I just, I don't know. I'm just thankful on a number of levels. One, for the conversations that you and I are having, because they're, it's like, I felt like after last week's conversation, there was like this, there was like this huge crack in the wall, and I could see a little bit of light coming through in a way that I don't feel like I have before. And so that conversation combined with uh, Evan mentioning N.T. Wright, and then, you know, I've kind of dabbled in him before, but anyway, I went on Amazon, and lo and behold, I think Amazon's playing games with me or something, because some days, Surprised by Hope is like two ninety nine for the Kindle book, and other days is $12. Well, this day it was two ninety nine, <laughs> so I just bought it. And I started reading it, and it was such a breath of fresh air, I can't even tell you. I mean, just, I know I've said that before about him, but like, anyway, just a breath of fresh air. Then I then I also went looking on iTunes for interviews or podcasts with him. And there's all kinds of stuff out there of him lecturing on, in different places. Nice. Amazing as well. Yeah. And then that led to, I don't know, a longer conversation. You and I had over chat the other night and I actually ended up buying another one of his books that again, I think Amazon is stocking me or something. Another Kindle book for two ninety nine. I think that one was called the, when God became King. Yeah, did I get that right? That was two ninety nine. I don't if it's it might still be out there. So, so anyway, I guess to bring this full circle a little bit, I'm just thankful for the listeners out there. Thankful for people sharing what they're learning and sharing what they've done because it it totally it's been totally helpful to me. It gives new insights. It gives new ideas. I think it's all part of the process. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the feedback, for writing in letting us know you're out there, and and again, sharing what you're up to. So today, I wanted to go after a little bit more this idea of God is making a covenant. God is making a promise. Uh, You had mentioned some passages in Genesis, 
in episode 73, I went and looked some of them up as I was listening to it again. And my first thought was, well, these promises are all being made to Abraham. And we, you, we slash you have been very critical in the past of saying, well, you know, these certain things in the Bible are not like explicitly to us. They were to the explicitly the people that time or the people that are being addressed. So two, it's a two-part question that could take weeks to untangle, and that's totally fine. Because what I'd love to do is in the same way we kind of went through this pamphlet, The Mystery in the Manger, The Mystery in the Manger, I can't get, keep getting it wrong. Uh, I'm sorry, it's The Manger and the Mystery. I would love to get from you kind of your kind of beginning to end presentation of what you consider the gospel to be. And just to kind of, you know, pretend, well, I don't know, you need to pretend, but from the standpoint of, you know, pretend, well, pretend I'm someone that you don't know. And they come along and they say, Greg, you know, what's the big deal about Christianity? And where do you get all this stuff from? And lay it out for me from beginning to end. Why does this matter? Why would I want to believe it? Mm -hmm. How can I even know that it's true? The Mm -hmm. how can I even know that it's true part probably comes way later. So I probably shouldn't have thrown that in. So two questions. Two kind of starter questions. Yeah, start one, where exactly is the beginning? And I think it's with this promise. And then two, can you kind of lay out this promise, this covenant, and how we know it applies to us? Yeah. Well, you know, when uh, we did this last week and I was writing the notes for, you know, the podcast as as I, I do most weeks, I got so fired up as I was writing and I was so incredibly um, pleased and just just really um, so excited to be able to put this stuff down and realize there really is a lot of content here that I have never expressed in this way. I mean, it's just, I don't know why, it's never occurred to me to try to lay all this out. And we talk about, you know, going back to Genesis and talking about the, the promise to Abraham. We talk about God's kingdom. We talk about the significance of the covenant in terms of understanding what's going on in the New Testament. And yet, I mean, we just haven't really, maybe the opportunity hasn't presented itself for us to go through this in a more linear way. Yeah, no, I think you're right. But I also, I want to I want to call a lot of attention to this because I feel like we've, we're turning a corner, perhaps. I think there will always be a place for criticism, but I feel like kind of up until now, a lot of our conversation has been around deconstructing and critiquing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like now we might be turning that corner that I've always wanted to turn, which is, mm-hmm. okay, we've talked about a lot of stuff that doesn't work. So mm-hmm. other presentations of what the gospel is or why we're here or what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Now I'd love to move more in the direction of you helping me to understand how you see the way that it really is or the or or a better understanding of the way that it is. Yeah, I I I think that's maybe a good way to go, John, is that it it really is a place of starting out from uh, yeah, as much as we can, um not the beginning, but a a place that's sufficiently early so that we've got enough context to understand it. I was actually listening to just recently the podcast or the tape, the video of N.T. Wright when he was at Calvin College in 2012 presenting on what would later be, yeah, the book that you, uh, you've got the Kindle version of. I actually bought three books. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I bought um, three of his more recent books, and and I picked up an older one that I, uh, I, I think it's on back order. So I'm I'm waiting to pick up an older one that I I needed to get. But um, I was just so excited, as I mentioned before, when I was writing the episode notes and just seeing all of this come together and realizing that so much of what we were talking about. I mean, I remember us talking about. Uh, some portions in Kyle Eidelman's Not a Fan when, when things would be uh, – Eidelman wrote things along the lines of, uh, you know, you need to make more room for God so that – we need to make room for God for the Holy Spirit, which means less of us. And me pushing back against that and saying, no, 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 that's not it at all. And I think what the, – the, the significance of me raising that uh, moment of discussion is that the topics interweave. It all comes together. It comes together on, in a picture that I think, on the one hand, it makes sense. On the other hand, it is, it's credible. Well, and that's so, what N.T. Wright does so amazingly well. I've listened to a couple interview, or interviews or lectures or whatever, and then reading these books. It's like, it's so comprehensive. It's not this yeah, simplistic... Uh, yeah, I don't know how. I wish I could explain it clear at this point, but it's yeah, it's exactly what you just said. Well, you know it, what? What occurs to me is that it's almost fragmented. It's almost this kind of fragmented. the 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 message that I typically hear, whether it's Kyle Eidelman or whether it's most of the evangelical churches that I'm familiar with or have attended or whatever, is I'm hearing these kind of fragmented messages that are heavy, heavy, dense, and focused in certain areas. Because all the assumptions are established. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that that assumption piece is particularly important because it may very well, the assumptions may very well keep us from investigating the text more fully, from asking ourselves questions. And on the one hand, you know, I think that assumptions are legitimate Assumptions in terms of uh, in, in, in theology are what we might call tradition, right? There's a tradition of understanding of certain texts that, you know, I don't have to start from scratch. I, I can't, right? It's not, it's not something that I'm not the type of being as a human being that starts from scratch. I start out from where I'm at. I'm brought up in a culture with certain understandings. Even if I know nothing about Christianity, there, at least in in the North America, in North America, in the West, much of my culture is infused with certain understandings, certain even words. You know, we talk about redeeming a situation. We talk about whatever justifying something. These 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 all have tie-ins back to and find their sort of their their original meaning for most of the culture within this context. Even though now, admittedly, most of them are quite you know divorced from that uh, initial starting point but you were you were commenting on rights that was speaking at calvin yeah i mean i i think on the he he's he makes it clear he makes it credible and i think he makes it effective in the sense of offering you a a full if you like a full narrative that makes sense of this whole thing like why did this happen what was going on why did this, we've got this, you know, I think I re- recall reading in the, uh, in fact, I've got it just here. I can just cite it. Uh, this is the pamphlet, uh, The Mystery in the Manger that we were talking about uh, from last week. And 
There's this part when Jesus gave up his life, he was sacrificing himself for us by taking the punishment we should receive by def- for defying God. And of course, many people would say, well, I'm, what are you talking about? Who is this God? I've never met him. I never heard of him. <laughs> or, you know, I've heard of this story. How am I defying God? That's ridiculous. And I would say, yeah, I think it is. It's somebody taking a story and starting where? Well, kind of in the middle. Would you like, like, if you're hoping that somebody's going to understand, why start in the middle? <laughs> yeah. And you know what? On that note, on that exact topic, and we'll put this in the notes, the N.T. Wright was in a conversation at Menlo Park Presbyterian in California last May. And hmm. that exact question was asked and he responds to it in a very articulate way, like in just a way I've never heard before. So I'll have a note to that, the, that presentation too, if people want to listen to it. Continue. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I think what we want to really be doing is we, we, we really try to try to get the sense of the story. And, you know, I think sometimes maybe it's the, uh, that old kind of enlightenment idea that we really want to work with hard facts. We don't want to work with anything fanciful. Stories don't matter. What we want are facts. And, uh, uh, you know, a listener wrote, Recently, I was, I was rereading something that was written, and this listener wrote to us and said, well, how do you know the person isn't telling the truth? And I thought, I, I don't think it's about truth. I think it's about how we're interpreting, how we're taking in all of the information around us, and how we're assembling it, what we're making of it, what we are lending more weight to and less weight to. It's like conducting a symphony, right? And I'm not saying that for all that, that there is no truth, right? That there is no Right, writer ways and wronger ways of reading a story. I mean, you could you could misread the Bible radically. I, I remember, in fact, it must have been like the first five or six weeks that we were at Labrie back in 1995 in the autumn. And I was there in Farrell House in the chapel, and there were a number of us having a, a bit of a discussion. Susan and I did not participate in many of these discussions because at that point we were still very, very firmly agnostic, very kind of hostile. I remember one, somebody kind of trying to lay out the absurd end of the spectrum and, and they said, well, for instance, you can't make the Bible into a recipe for spam. You know, this one guy, and I think he was in a certain way, I don't think he was trying to be funny. I, th- I think he was kind of being serious. And he said, well, I can. And I just thought, man, I may not have much time for the Bible right now in my life, being an agnostic and, and really feeling host- in a hostile way towards Christianity, but that's one of the most stupid things I've ever heard. And so I think we really need to be careful. No, you know, I, I would not. Well, what's interesting you saying that is, so in this interview that I just referred to with N.T. Wright, he's talking about how, you know, Christians have kind of a history in recent times of use, he refers to it as using the Bible as a phone book. Mm. If you need a number or recipe for something, it's in there. You just have to find it. And then, <laughs> and, and then he also explains how modernism is, he, he, of course, he explains it in like five sentences, and it made sense at the time, so I don't know that I can recount it, but it was the idea that, that modernism brought us this idea of, of yeah. right or wrong, true or false. And he also kind of weaves in and explains this idea of story. And um, it also, I think it's in the, this book I'm reading too, he's talking about the idea of the Gospels and, you know, people often start from the place of, is this true or not? And mm-hmm. he, he comes at it more from the angle of, well, we have four different stories here. 
what are these what's the thrust of what's going on here and yeah and it's a it's it's the difference is very subtle but the outcome is much different oh very much so and and i don't think my my hunch is he he would agree with me or that we would be in agreement that there are certain radical misuses of something like the bible in the same way that there could be a you know a novel or a book of laws or a recipe book, right? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, when he's talking about stories, he's looking at what's the form of this text? What's its genre, if we can say that? And there are certain things it's not. It's not a recipe for spam. You just can't do that. If you're doing that, then, then either, you know, you're playing fast and loose or there's something not quite right with the way you're seeing the world. You've got to disconnect with reality. But either way, I'm not interested in what you have to say. If, if you're being legitimately, if you're being serious about making that claim, that's a claim I can't get on board with. But yeah, for the most part, when we're talking about stories, there's a value and there is a reality in stories, even insofar as stories help us through p- presenting a possible world and a possible way of existing. They allow us to step back, as it were, from our current world and say, how could it be different? How even how might I act otherwise? So stories inspire us. They challenge us. They do a whole bunch of things, right? And even historiography, which is the writing of history, involves the creativity and sometimes the implotment, the this happened because of that and resulted in this, blah, blah, blah. The explanation, as it were, of why certain things came to pass. But that's the art of the historian, which is not all about science. Ultimately, hopefully, they're presenting or representing the past accurately. But part of then what we need to do is we need to look at, well, what are the rules of engagement, right? Because in the past, so look at, in the book of Acts, I'm not exactly sure where it is, but Paul is heading off to Rome. He has been, he is is demanded as a Roman citizen to come before the emperor on, uh, instead of taking, you know, allowing the charges to be dropped at a certain point, he said, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to come before the emperor. He gets on a boat to cross because he's got to. The boat is called the Castor and Pollux. Castor and Pollux are two Roman deities. And the, the implication is he didn't, I, I have no idea what type of, what the, what the name of the boat was, but the authors at that point, part of the rules of engagement are it's fine for them to embellish somewhat on some of the information in order to convey a point. Why put in Castor and Pollux? Because they're to do with, again, I don't have my books in front of me, unfortunately, but to do with justice and to do with uh, justice being served. And so Paul getting on this, on the boat called the Castor and Pollux was an indication that he is, he's, he's just and justice will be served for him, right? Going forward as he's going to Rome for this, essentially his trial. But so rules of engagement are really important too. We've got to really be careful not to impute to first century authors or maybe ancient authors, authors of the Hebrew Bible, the type of rules that we have. And we certainly cannot say that because they don't see the world the way we do, or because they don't hold the same rules that we do, that what they say has no value, that they're a bunch of uh, primitive morons, you know, they've got no savvy 
I mean, when you look at the way the Hebrew texts are structured, they are, the literary artistry is phenomenal. If you read someone like Robert Alter or Meyer Sternberg, uh, Robert Alter's the, um, the Art of Biblical History and uh, Meyer Sternberg's The Poetic of Biblical Narrative, uh, these are looking specifically at the Old Testamental texts, a lot looking at Genesis, you know, some of the narratives in Genesis. They are noting some incredible artistry, some incredible skill when you get back and you look at the Hebrew. So we really have to be careful. And these, these stories aren't here just randomly. It's not like, oh, a bunch of people, you know, they, they got to writing and they kind of told us a little bit about God. But what really counts is the New Testament. <laughs> so, so how does this all tie back to Abraham, the covenant, and all that? Well, again, it, it means you gotta, you've got to make sense of that. And in fact, that is what makes sense of the Gospels. That is what makes sense of the New Testament. And I think this is at the core of N.T. Wright's message, that a covenantal focus, in other words, understanding the covenant, putting the events of the New Testament and the orientation of the New Testament within a context of what? Of coming after, of being still, if you will, a part of, and in a certain sense, fulfilling in a kind of radicalized way, fulfilling that covenant are, these are the particular lenses through which we can understand what's going on in the New Testament. And, and I think he would argue, and I would certainly be of the opinion that this isn't just like one way to understand it, it is the way to understand it. That not having that focus is ripping the New Testament out of its context. I mean, why not make it be, instead of Jews, make it be somebody else. I mean, if all you're going to do is look at the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, oh, they said he'd come and da-da-da-da-da. You know, we're, we're happy as Christians uh, typically to quote Isaiah and other Old Testamental prophets where they're focusing on the, the if you will, the, the coming of the Messiah or the birth of the Messiah, but we rarely talk so much about why in a, in a, a Judean, in, a, in an Israelite context, this Messiah had to come. What, what is it that precipitated this? What sort of context was it? And what then, if this Messiah, Messiah comes from that context, what's this person doing or resolving in terms of that context? And, how, and then ask the question, well, how does that impact me? And I guess my hunch is we really want to see ourselves as very center stage. You know, again, in this pamphlet, when Jesus, when Christ came he gave up his life. I'm reading from page two at the top. He was sacrificing himself for us by taking the punishment we should receive by defying God. That is why Jesus was born and why he had to die. Had he not died for our sins, we would, not, we would have had to die for our, for our own. For, as God said, the price of sin is death. So we've got someone who we are defying God. Jesus was born for this specific reason. He died for our sins. Well, no, he died for, his death was a fulfillment of the entirety of the covenant, which is now open to us. In other words, we who have, you know, I have no Jewish blood in me that I know of at all. There's no, by rights, I have no access to this, this, this God of the Jews. So spend some time on what this covenant is. I mean, that's why, I, that's why I keep wanting to understand. <laughs> well, it, it, or are you, you getting there? <laughs> No, well, yeah, no, that's a good point. So you've got you've got Noah back in uh, Genesis nine. I don't know, I, let's not go all the way back. Let's just <laughs> no, we have to start with Adam. I'm super, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's precursor here to 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 Noah, right? And then uh, you go through. God makes a covenant. You know, the the beginning of covenant making 
happens with Noah. It oh, around the flood. Yeah, 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 yeah. He says there'll and never be another flood. Exactly. And I'm reading in the NRSV from Genesis 9, 9. As for me, this is God. Well, I'll read from 9, 9, 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, and this is, quote, this is God speaking in the text. As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And there are numerous references in, uh, we skip down a little bit to uh, verse 13, the same chapter. I've set my, my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign the bow being the rainbow, of the covenant between me and the earth. So there's a covenant between Abraham and all his, pardon me, Noah and his descendants, between God and the earth. And then God goes on, you know, there's references to God again saying, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. I will see it when I see the rainbow and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So we've got this indication of a covenant that, you know, that this type of radical action that took place in, I think it's 11, really, when the flood ex- uh, occurred, will not take place again. But it's in 12 when Abraham, who is a descendant, interestingly, of Noah, um, I'll just read from verses 1 and uh, 2 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your great near name great, so that you will be a blessing. Shall I read the next couple verses as well? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's a big part of it, right? If you do this, here's what's going to happen. Well, sure enough, Abraham left where he was living which was a place called Ur. Wait, where does it say that Abraham has to do something? Well, here you go. I'll read it again. So I'll read verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. This is the NRSV. Now the Lord said to Abram, and uh, bearing in mind that, that, that God told Abram to change his name to Abraham because the, the meaning of the name is different, right? The meaning of Abraham, I think, is uh, having many descendants or something like that. So there was a name change to mirror the fact that God had made this promise. But here's the promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's commanding him, go, go and do this. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you do this, this will be the result. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a command followed by or joined with a promise. Now, this is before there's any, any sort of active covenant making, right, between God and Abram. Then if we flip, how, how much clearer is that? I'm not seeing the two tied to each other the way I read it. I'm just seeing God telling Abram to do something, and then he's also saying, 
by the way, I'm also going to do all these other things. But he's not saying, I don't see it here. If you don't do it, then I won't give you this stuff. Hmm. I'm reading the message. Let me switch to NIV. Yeah, so the NIV says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, and the Lord, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So I'm not, I'm not seeing the, you do this, I'll give you that. Sure. Bear with me a second. I'm just putting these two out here side by side. See what it reads in the American Standard. It's kind of funny. I grew up with that one, and I always steer away from it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, it was in my in my tradition. It was like the most literal, true translation because it, you know, they didn't water anything down. But I find it harder to read and understand. Okay, let's see what it says here. Now, Jehovah said unto Abram, this is American Standard, not the oh, new. Amer- okay, I'm looking at New American Standard. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I don't think I've got the New American Standard on this one, unfortunately. Well, let's read it in the old language. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land I will show you, and I will make to thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. Yeah, I think the implication there is this isn't, I mean, when you, when you see that, right, and I will do this, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and be thou a blessing, and I will bless thee, and I will bless them that bless thee, and him that curseth thee I will curse, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The ands there, I think, are helpful. The problem I have for you is I can't, I, well, that's not true. Let's put it in, um, I can't read Hebrew. I, I just don't have Hebrew, which is a shame. But... I can do. But we can move on to. We can just say that John still doesn't agree and move on. <laughs> oh no 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 <laughs> no 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 no. Just wait, just wait, just wait. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. So interestingly, in the Greek now, I'm reading from the LXX, the Septuagint. Each of these verses, Genesis 12, 1, 12, 2, 12, 3, 12, 4, and I recognize that it was not originally written in the Greek. The Greek is also a translation. But nevertheless, this, this, you know, as we read more translations, if we're having difficulty understanding, well, what is the exact sort of orientation between a couple of verses? Versus what, what's their relationship? The more translations we can put into place, the more we're likely to have some clarity there. Now, I don't have a commentary on Genesis in front of me either, but interestingly, each one of these verses begins with the conjunction, kai, meaning and, also, even, and yet, but. So it's conjunction. It means it's tying it in. It's tying it into the previous verse. So I think there's a logic there within the verses, and I think the ASV gave us a little bit of a hint there because it actually translated those kais as and, right? Do this, and I will, da da da, and I will, and I will. So I. Yeah, without without having a commentary and without being able to look at the Hebrew and actually make sense of it, at least for me, I, I'm I'm confident that that's enough of a of an indication. Like, like we, you know, the ancient authors who created this translation. I'll take your uh, word at it. Well, I'll take your word at it for now, but I'm gonna do okay. my own homework. Yeah. Well, I, carry I, on. <laughs> okay. So we're going forward with the implication that the idea is you do this and this will happen. 
right? And we could also ask ourselves questions. Well, what 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 was the standard in the ancient Near East, which is the time period that this would have been written? What was the the standard and the understanding? What would audiences have understood, right? Well, the understanding is, hey, God's this divinity is saying do this, and this will result, right? This isn't an optional sort of thing. You know, you do this. Oh, but by the way, I'm going to do this for you. No, 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 no. There, there's a kind of a, there's an interaction going on here, right? And that interaction would have resulted in uh, some sort of request and response. And this is the response, right? You've done this, therefore this will happen. So this is, this is kind of the, the initial context, right? And then we go forward a little bit. If we go into Genesis, let me just read from 15. And then even into, into 17. This is, this is some cool stuff. Okay, this is um, at the NRSV, chapter 5, Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no, and Abram said, you have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed, he being Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. I'll read a couple more verses here. We're going to move into this part with the covenant. Um, so this is still continuing on, just where I left off, verse 7 there, verse, chapter 15. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, being Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, he being God, bring me a heifer of three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And they go through this price, this process of laying these animals down, of actually cutting them apart, which is part of a you know an ancient Near Eastern ceremony. And then if I skip forward a few verses to verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the pieces of the animals that had been cut apart. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Just a second, you said something really interesting there. Yeah. So you said this is some type of, what'd you call it, an ancient tradition or ritual? Ritual, yeah. See, I have always read and seen that stuff as, oh, God was just asking them to do some weird stuff with some animals. Why did he pick those animals? I don't know, because he thought they were important. But maybe what you're saying is, no, this was a fairly common practice? Yeah. I mean, the whole sacrificial system is not some sort of bogus thing that God created. Right? I mean, sacrifice is, is part and parcel of the ancient Near East. How it worked out in Israel, actually, is, is interesting. Right? So laws, you, laws, are, laws existed in the ancient Near East. You have the, the law of Hammurabi right? uh, in Mesopotamia, which, I don't know, it may have predated the biblical law, uh, you know, uh, Judean law. But, but some of the things you're going to find is that, for the, by and large, there are differences in this Judean law. So in other words, if you kill somebody or if you harm somebody as an Israelite, uh, the gentry and, and, and the elite do not get off. 
they, they do not get a lighter sentence. It's the same sentence for everybody. So there's, there's equity there. Whereas in the ancient Near East, generally, no, there is no equity. If you're a nobility, uh, you can stand to do certain things. You stand to do better if you do certain things than if you're not, right? You have a lesser penalty to pay. And so, yeah, no, I think, I think part of the problem too is that we, we see these things as, again, we're ripping them out of their context. So if we're ripping the New Testament out of its Hebrew Bible context, its ancient context, we're also ripping acts and sort of uh, events in uh, the ancient, uh, in the Hebrew Bible out of their ancient Near Eastern context. And by failing to see how much they, they, they fit in, like even the structure of the Mosaic, uh, the, the covenant given at Sinai, which we're, we're, we're miles away from at this point, right? That's in Exodus and fleshed out in Deuteronomy and such. Leviticus, etc. But even that's Hittite. The, the way the covenant's set up, it's Hittite. It's not something brand new that God said, oh, look, here is a brand new way of doing things. And I think part of what we, we miss when we don't see that it comes from a certain context is God is not necessarily endorsing everything in that. Right? If, if the sacrificial system was, was endorsed by God and should be the way it's done, then it wouldn't have changed with the New, with the new Testament. Right, we would still having be having to do some of that, and in a certain sense, you might say, "Well, that's been fulfilled. Jesus died as a sacrifice." Well, on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, there are so much of that ancient Near Eastern perspective that could have been preserved, but it hasn't been. Why? Because that wasn't ultimately the point. God wasn't giving, saying to the Israelites, "Here's the best." He was saying, "Of what you've got, here's how to make it as good as it can be." And we're going to keep going. We're going to keep working with this. This is an ongoing, if you like, it's on a trajectory. It's an ethic on a trajectory. So that we're moving finally into place, into the New Testament where, for example, instead of seeing women as chattel and men can have as many wives as they like, you see, you know, um, mentions in Colossians and in Galatians, there is no Greek or Jew, free or slave, male or female. but all are one in Christ Jesus. That's phenomenal. That's taking a system that was broken and saying there is tremendous equality and worth in every single human being. And it's doing it at a time when that type of message was not able to be heard. We're listening to this thousands of years later, hundreds of years later. And we think it's just commonplace, some of this. It's not. It's radical. And it still has an impact now. So let me, let me cut myself off before I keep going on that. But the references in here, I want to read just the beginning of Genesis 17, the first nine verses. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Pardon me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. So you see that the change of name and the significance based on what the role and the purpose, what Abraham was going to do. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. And that's the first, those are the first eight verses, but I mean, really importantly in there, you're seeing this establishing of an everlasting covenant, but, but it sounds like a reiteration of the promise because it is, right? If you go back to 12, you'll see this. Now the Lord, I'm reading from verses 12, 1 to, 1 to 3, NRSV still, same version. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now this is the land of Canaan. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the same freaking thing. God makes a promise. Do this and this shall come about, right? As I mentioned in the Greek, this and this and this and this. Each one of those verses beginning with an and. And as you saw in the American Standard Version, as well. There's a, they're conjoined. They're part of the same deal. But the covenant in its kernel is the same thing, right? Why do that? What is that about? Does that make any sense at all? Why would you make a covenant with somebody to do exactly, to say exactly the same thing you, you've promised them? Now, Abraham did come. You know, obviously he was asked, he commanded, if you will, come from this place to this land and these will be the results. Abraham comes, there's a result and then God makes a covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. It will be an everlasting covenant between you and all your descendants. Kings will come out of you. You will be fruitful and multiply. The nations of the earth will be blessed. And then, you know, that's a very kind of, um, I don't know, you could call it a proto-covenant. It's a, it's a really early form of a covenant. It's not quite so broad, nowhere near so broad as with Noah which is between Noah and his sons, but again, with, with God, with also with the animals. And then with the whole earth, God's making a covenant, right? Nothing disastrous is going to strike. This is much more specific. It's with Abraham and his descendants, but it still does not have the, the, the kind of specificity that it will later take when you have uh, the covenant, I guess, at, at Sinai. I think there's one at Horeb as well. Okay, because that was going to be my next question and, and also kind of looking for a natural stopping point today, which is, what's the link between Abraham and us? Nothing. Like, let's get that one straight. <laughs> oh, that wasn't I'm not the a Jew. answer I was expecting. I'm not a Jew. Well, this is part of, part of my beef with some of these things. Like, God came to save us from our sins for defying God. No, 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 no. There was something that made sense here. It's called a deal. Uh, back then it was called a covenant. There was a deal set up between this fellow Abraham and God. That is so so interesting because yes, I can just see any number of people reading this passage in church and saying, you know, isn't it amazing that God made this covenant to us? No, we've been graciously brought into this. We are the, 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 I mean, this is a much longer conversation. (laughs) It is, it is. And I'm saying we in the sense of non-Jews. Right? I'm Fair a non Jew. So am I. Yep. Okay. So we, you and me, at least, and many, many, many others, have been given the opportunity to 
engage in right relationship with God. We have been, uh, all the barriers, all the potential barriers have been dropped, right? And we are being sought out. We are ongoingly being sought out by God in a number of different ways. And we know what those are and how we discern those are worth, um, worth looking at, right? But, but I think the important part is, no, there is no relationship, strictly speaking, between us and Abraham. But in terms of the New Testament, the relationship is that this is the initial context. Maybe one of the key initial, key places we should start for initial context for understanding who Jesus was, what his life was about, why he died, why that death is significant, and what all these things mean for you and me today, particularly you and me who aren't Jews, right? For us. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 74. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.